0: Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church podcast. Sunday School by Rob Hadding on June sixth, Lord's Day service. I'm really happy to to be here with my family. We've been looking forward to this trip, and we had a we've had a great time in Huntsville, uh, driving around, seeing the sights, and it's just been a lot of fun. So, uh, thank you everybody for your hospitality. Uh, it has been. Uh, a, a great pleasure to all of us. Um, what I what I want to do this morning is I want to introduce uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, um, what we know as Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And uh, what we're what I'm hoping to do here is kind of uh, set out a uh, uh, a way of understanding the Bible, which could and should help us understand the world. Right. So, what is the context? into which Paul is writing. What is he, what is he doing in the text? What, what, is his, what is his purpose? Who is he talking to? And it kind of provides for us a model of how we interact with the world that we're, we're in. We don't just walk into a world and just start saying words and have that have some sort of magical effect. We, we exegete the world that we're in, which is what Paul had done. He had exegeted the, uh, the culture that he was in. So he, he exegeted the culture and then he exegeted, um, exegeted Jesus to them so we're going to uh talk about that this morning i'm going to read the first um, nine verses of first corinthians and then we'll pray and then we'll start doing the uh, the work so let's hear the word of the lord paul called by the will of god to be an apostle of christ jesus and our brother sosthenes to the church of god that is in corinth to those sanctified in christ jesus called to be saints together with all those who In every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our lord jesus christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our lord jesus christ god is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of into the fellowship of his son jesus christ our lord this is the word of the lord be to god. let's pray our heavenly father as we look into paul's first letter to the church in corinth we pray that you would help us to see clearly your purposes in preserving this letter for our benefit and instruction and that we would be strengthened and built up through it. We ask for wisdom, Father, that we would rightly understand and apply Paul's letter to our own time and in our own circumstances. And most of all, we pray that you would use this letter to draw us closer to you and to one another, that we might image you forth as your body in the world. We pray this in the name of and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So in looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, Um, We have to understand, as I said before, the context, what's going on, what kind of book is 1 Corinthians, Uh, what kind of literature is it, is it history, is it an epistle, is it poetry? Uh, Who is it written to? Why is it written? And all the rest. These are the questions that we, we should go into. Every letter, every book of the Bible, we have to figure out what its context is. Because if we just dive into the text and start pulling out verses randomly, we're, in, we're doing a pretty dangerous thing. We're, we're, we're not understanding it as it is presented. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to do that work. We want to get a lay of the land so that we can read this letter in such a way as to rightly understand it and properly apply its teaching. Right. It is probably um, uh, maybe feel a little bit sermonic at times because this Sunday school lesson was actually first crafted as a sermon. So I might get a little homiletic at times. Uh, forgive me. That's, that's the, the nature of the thing. And, and, and you'll be fine. Right. So let's look at Corinth itself. What is what is this place, Corinth? Um, uh, Corinth is a Greek port city on the uh, it's an, on an isthmus. An isthmus is a land bridge. So you have two sections of land and then you have this little land bridge that separates them and there's water to the north and water to the south. And uh, it's between Athens and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And it had been dormant for about a century uh, before being destroyed in 146 BC by the Romans. And then in 140, or not 144, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar refounded this city. Um, so he reestablished the city. And uh, s- another uh, notable event from 44 BC Julius Caesar, the founder of Corinth, died. So it was the last great act, and then Et tu brute and all that. Um, and it was initially populated, Corinth was initially populated by retired soldiers, uh, people who fought in the army, um, and former slaves. So Corinth was not founded as a wealthy place. It was founded by um, uh, uh, people who needed a place to live, who were looking for a way to scrap out a living, and former, former slaves who were called freedmen. Uh, these, are, these are people who had been slaves and had found their freedom, but they were just a notch above slaves, right? So the, the first population of Corinth was not uh, the rich and famous. It was people who were scrapping out a living. And because it is situated between the Aegean Sea and the Ionian Sea, um, it was situated pretty well to serve the shipping trades, right? So there was um, a lot of shipping going on in, in this area. The goods were being moved around all over the place. And Corinth was in this place as this land bridge that it it was um, a logical place for things to be transported from one place to another. But one of the things that was interesting about this place is between the sea to the north and the sea to the south, if you wanted to get goods from here to here, you had to go all the way around. Or if you wanted to go from here to here, you had to go all the way around. And so what they did in Corinth was they would actually pull up to the port at Corinth, they would unload the ships, they would move the cargo across land, they would move the ship across land, and then they would reset it in the other side and so what this did is this created an industry for corinth to begin trading on right very interesting um, corinth grew to become a very prosperous and populous city over time where there's industry where there's a possibility for income and wealth and people improving their situations you're going to have people coming from all over the place to try to uh, improve their own their own lives i lost my place corinth Um, Was also, uh, it came to be the host of what was known as the Isthmian Games. Uh, Isthmus is a hard word to say. Isthmian is harder to say. Uh, But that was the Games, and it was a a biannual event. Every two years they would come together, and it it would rival the Olympics, right? So this is is the kind of thing that was going on there. So that would draw a lot of people to Corinth. Um, It was termed at one point wealthy Corinth because it had grown to be such a prosperous place now in terms of the religious life of Corinth it was a thoroughly pagan place it was not a place that had any uh, Christian moorings obviously Um, it it, it was not a very um, uh, uh, busy place for, for Jewish activity so it was just a a pagan place altogether the greek and roman religions which were blatantly idolatrous were the most dominant and although there there was there did come to be a small jewish community Um, and if you read acts chapter 18 you can read about the establishment of uh, the church at corinth there was a small jewish community there Um, but by and large the place was just utterly pagan now the moral climate in corinth was notoriously bad everybody knew that corinth was trouble if you go to corinth you're going there for uh, not good reasons right uh, it was uh, there was a a phrase that emerged um, it was made popular by aristophanes and it was uh, in english we would say to Corinthianize. and if you were corinthianizing it means that you were being immoral Right? There was, a, there was a, a sexually immoral component to, to this word. You're, it's debauchery. Uh, um, it, it, in, in its context, Corinth was kind of like taking New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco and Vegas and mashing them all together, all the worst parts, and that's what you have when you have Corinth. It was wealthy, it was worldly, and it was thoroughly debauched. It was not a good place. It's uh, in its context, excuse me. So when Paul arrives into this context, when he, he gets there, sometime around A.D. 50, he enters a world that is predisposed to being hostile, hostile to the gospel. I say that three times fast. Uh, the gospel of a Messiah who had died and bids them to die that they might find true life this this is not the message that these people are prepared to hear what what Paul preaches makes no sense to any of them when he goes into Corinth and he starts talking about Jesus he's talking uh, uh, he's talking nonsense to them it just they have no place no no context for it at all um, but as we read in Acts chapter 18 when he gets there he meets Aquila and his wife Priscilla who they were tent makers and they had left Italy when all the jews were ordered out of rome and in keeping with his vocation as an apostle of jesus christ he focused on persuading people that jesus is the messiah jesus is the christ jesus Jesus is the the lord of the universe that's his message he goes into corinth and he's not offering them some sort of new religious experience he is he is saying that you have to turn all of your allegiances from everything else to the one true lord namely namely jesus christ now imagine the work that is ahead of Paul as he ministers and teaches these people. This is, this is a tough gig. Uh, this, is, uh, this is rough church planting, right? There's no, there's no context for the kind of thing that he's, at, that he's trying to do. And so he's got his, wor- his work cut out for him. He is uh, not coming into Corinth and giving them flannel graph Sunday school lessons about Noah and his Archie, arky, arky. He is re-enculturating them. He is turning the culture on its head. He is teaching them what it is to be truly human. This is what it means to be a human being, is what he's saying to them. In a thoroughly pagan environment, this is no small task and it 's a significant element to keep in mind, keep in mind as we read the balance as we go through the letter of first corinthians it 's really important for us to keep this in mind because he is going to do some very Serious work in this letter. He's going to be confronting a lot of their presuppositions. He's going to be uh, confronting their corruptions of the message that he had already given to them, and so he gets really rough with them at, at, at points. But he has to do this because he's trying to correct. Uh, they received this message, and he's trying to correct um, their their bad understandings and their misapplications. Um, uh, in, in this letter, he's not just dealing with squabbles between church members, he's overcoming a way of being for an entire people. He's, he's saying that the way that you have known the world to be is just not true. And so he's upsetting everything. Now Paul had been in Corinth for about a year and a half when the church was up and running. Uh, He continued on his mission to be an apostle. After that, he was planting churches elsewhere. He was spreading the gospel uh, throughout the world. Um, But, um, uh, oh, I just lost my place. But after, yes, so after he had been away for a while, word came to him that significant uh, uh, problems had emerged in the church at Corinth. The community was, uh, was, was in upheaval over several things. Um, and so he found it necessary to address them. Now, we, I, I said earlier that this is not the first letter that Paul had written, or w- what we know as 1 Corinthians is not the first letter. Um, there obviously had been another letter in uh, chapter 5, verse 9. He mentions a previous letter. Um, so this is, uh, uh, this, is this, this is likely the second letter that he had written to them. And the occasion for this letter is to address the problems that have emerged in Corinth that's what he's doing this is a letter like no other in scripture it's all about addressing this problem and this problem and this problem and so he goes straight after it Chloe's people had reported to Paul that there was dissension in the community and Paul was justifiably alarmed some of the problems that he was addressing was fornication sexual, immor- sexual immorality legal disputes abuses of the Lord's Supper division among the classes of people in the church and controversies about resurrection from the dead, just to name a few. There were all kinds of things that were just up in the air and Paul needed to address them. It also seems that the Corinthians had themselves had written a letter to Paul Asking for his counsel they we they they had questions for him Paul. We're we're seeing uh, This is the way that we're interacting with these things. How do we how do we fix these problems? What do do you have to say on these things and we don't have that letter, but they were uh, They were curious to have these problems resolved and they were asking him questions about sex and marriage um, about eating meat sacrificed to idols and likely uh, asking questions about the spiritual gifts and while Paul does intend to come to them another time to spend a good deal of, good deal of time with them, uh, 16, 7, we read that, um, he, he writes this letter because he can't get right there. So what's really interesting about this letter, second only to Romans in length in Paul's writing, is that it is not, properly speaking, a theological letter Right? This is not you know, so. In Romans, you have this this depth and this richness of theological teaching. Um, in uh, uh, Ephesians, uh, Colossians, you have these just this, this rich theology. That's not what Paul is doing here. It's dealing with behaviors. He's dealing with a wide range of problems rather than laying out a thoroughgoing uh, theological treatise. This does not mean that there's no theology in the letter. Paul's treatment of the problems uh, is is to apply theology to them. So it's a theological letter in the sense that he is addressing their issues, he's addressing the problems theologically, but he's not laying out his theology. Uh, He's doing doing what we call practical theology. This This is how this looks in your lives. This is how it is to manifest. So the church, by the time of Paul's writing, is about five years old. So the church at Corinth has been in existence for about five years, and it had a few Jewish members, you know, Jewish converts, but it was predominantly comprised of Gentile converts. And because there's no evidence that they owned any public meeting space, there was no, uh, they didn't have a school that they met in apparently. It was you know, no church building, no, no storefront, no nothing, no uh, architectural, uh, architect, no, uh, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? No, 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 no.
1: Uh,
0: uh, uh, uh. Archaeological. Archaeological is the word you're looking for. Thank you very much. Um, there's no archaeological evidence of them having any presence in the city. So uh... they likely met in homes they were um, uh, confined to meeting at homes and because um, because of this they probably Um, met in the home of the person who had the largest property who could accommodate the most people now when we think of paul writing a letter to a church in a place we often think about him writing a letter to uh, thousands of people right the the church at corinth must obviously be this this large mass of people the church at corinth most most commentators agree that was probably about 150 to 200 people about the size of Trinity, right? It's, it's about this size. Now, we, we may or may not know that that's plenty of people to get controversy going, right? You don't need thousands of people to have a controversy brew. If you get, you know, maybe six or eight people, you can get yourself a good controversy going. So all of these things are happening, but it's happening with a smaller group of people than we might imagine. Uh, we know from the text <clears throat> that there was a spectrum of Uh, Social and economic classes represented in the church ranging from the very prosperous, the very well-to-do, all the way to slaves or former slaves, freedmen. And the tensions and difficulties that that arose here are most clearly seen in the problems that arose around the Lord's Supper in chapter 11 where the wealthy were disregarding and treating shamefully those who were um, of of, of lesser means. There's also a problem with factions emerging in the body, of, in the church at Corinth, um, and this is likely owing to several factors. In the ancient world of Roman Greece, rhetoric was a high art. It was highly prized. Someone who could make a great speech, someone who was very eloquent in their presentation uh, was regarded as somebody who was to be revered. They were, they were very highly esteemed. If you could stand up and make a speech and be persuasive, that's your guy. He's, he's, he's our guy. Um, and um, uh, rhetoric was connected to wisdom and so if you were able to speak well it was assumed that you had wisdom and wisdom for the Greeks was a great big deal uh, it was, it was a, the, the, the chief end of man was to be wise and to, to have attained uh, wisdom and so for, uh, for, the, for the people there they would have people come through and make these speeches and they would they would just you know okay he's our guy Um, and so it made sense that when apollos comes through who was clearly a gifted speaker this we know this from scripture he was a uh, a a very gifted speaker they 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 drew themselves to him they they were attracted to him and so they said well this 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 obviously is is a guy. This is is a guy who has the gift. This is a guy who knows what he's talking about. This is the kind of guy that we want to follow. And so uh, they would say, well, we like like Apollos more than we like Paul. And so these divisions were emerging. You know, I'm of this guy. We read this in the text. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I am of Petra or I'm of uh, Cephas. Um, and I, or I am of, of Christ, I am of Jesus, right? So these divisions were, were emerging in the body. Um, but Paul says, Paul says himself, um, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so what Paul determined to know, and we're going to talk about this a little bit in the sermon this morning. So what, just, just to give you guys the heads up, you're going to have a leg up when it comes to the sermon because you're going to have all this background. You're going to know things that the other people don't know. Yes, right. Right. <laughs> So, congratulations, and you're welcome. Um, well, we're going to talk about this a little bit uh, a, a little bit later. Um, Paul Paul did not care to come to them with lofty speech. That he didn't want to be a, a gimmick guy. He didn't want to come in and try to you know f- uh, razzle dazzle people. He just said, Look, I want you to understand who Jesus is. I want you to understand that he is the Messiah. That he is the King of the Universe, and you have to give your allegiance to him. And, and, and you know, full stop, that's the message that, that Paul proclaimed. Now, Apollos, it's interesting that Apollos' message was not different than Paul's. They weren't preaching different gospels. They weren't doing anything in contrast to one another. And in fact, uh, it's, it's reasonable to assume that Paul and, Ap- Paul and Apollos, and, and uh, uh, presumably also uh, Peter, would have been flabbergasted and appalled that these divisions were emerging on, and on the basis of their personalities and their their presentations this was not something that they would have done and they're not fostering this you know you don't have paul, paul and apollos going into corinth vying for uh, the the affections of and the loyalty of the people this is something that emerged among the people they very very helpful Paul is put in the position of having to defend and reassert his apostleship to them as at least some of them seem to have turned on him. Uh, Some of the people in Corinth had decided that, you know, Paul was really not an an apostle. He was not really um, that important. They they liked the, the message of Apollos better. And so he is put in the position of having to defend his credentials and his authority as an apostle. The challenge of the gospel in 1 Corinthians is that the gospel is a profound confrontation of the way of life in which these people understood the world. Paul's gospel is fundamentally the story of Jesus crucified and raised from the dead, and he insists that his identity of the community must be shaped with reference to the gospel story. Right? Paul's Paul's message is that everything that they know is Turned upside down. The people, even the church of Corinth, understood the world through the grid of wisdom. They understood the world through the grid of power and status and wealth. And we can imagine that that's a reasonable thing for people to glom onto because we see that in our time, right? Uh, wisdom and power and status and wealth and these things—these are the markers of uh, who who is the somebody. Versus who is the nobody. And to, con- to confront that with uh, a gospel of a Messiah, a crucified Messiah, just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit their paradigm. And so as time goes by, as time goes by, they blend what they know with what Paul is saying. So Paul comes in with this gospel message, crucified Messiah, uh, uh, turn your allegiances and so forth. And so they hear that, and, and, but they also have inherited this reality, this, they've been born uh, and raised in this reality of, of a pagan understanding of the world, a, a world of power and wisdom and all the rest. And they, they do what people do, they blended these things. They took what they knew with what they learned and they kind of incorporated things. And this is what people do. We we don't just abandon our reality as we know it when somebody says something new. We have to fit it into the reality, the construct that we already have in our our minds. Because if we didn't, our brains would explode, right? We have to make sense of the world. And so this is what the, the Corinthians had done. What happens as a result of this is what's known theologically as a hot mess, right? Things things went off the rails. Things got very bad relationally. Things got very bad theologically in the church. And Paul comes right at them. And he confronts them in very, very straight on uh, uh, forceful ways. He uses very strong language throughout the letter to condemn their practices, to condemn these things that they have done, and to instruct them in the right way. Because Paul's mission here is not just to to give them a a spanking, right? He's not just out to to y'all are wrong bad boy bad boy you know that kind of a thing he wants to put them on the right road but in order to do that he has to confront the the things that they're doing badly and he has to confront it straight up with strong medicine there's no there's no, no room for no time for subtlety because things have gotten so bad in corinth but this is not this is not because he's just got this sterile, theological view of the world and he wants everybody to obey the rules rightly. This, some have said that this is, it kind of seems loveless of Paul to, to be approaching the church in this way. Certainly in our time, if someone were to stand in front of a church of 150 people, right? So let's say we have 150, 200 people and the pastor gets up on Sunday morning and he starts confronting the sin of the congregation. There is sin amongst us. There are problems here that we have to fix. We're doing things wrongly. We're doing things badly. Some of y'all are not loving each other the way that you ought to. Some of you are, 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 are just making a mess of your lives sexually and in your marriage. There's all kinds of catastrophic things happening relationally among us. Not just out there in the world, not hypothetically, but among us. In our time, if a pastor stands up and does that, the next week the crowd's probably going to be a bit thinner. Because we, we like theology. We like to have our opinions arranged rightly. But it's something else when somebody confronts us. It's something else when somebody addresses our sin directly. We don't like it. But I submit that the most loving thing that we do for one another is to confront our sin. To confront each other's sin. That is a loving thing. And the reason is because sin is an assassin. It wants to kill you. And Paul recognizes this. Sin is out to get you. Sin wants to master you. And I have to prevent this from happening. And the only way to prevent that from happening is for you to recognize the danger and for me to help you recognize the danger and for me to fight that that enemy with you and for you. It's discipline. This is what discipline is. And it is the most loving thing that we can do for one another. There's too much at stake for Paul to dance around the issues and he goes straight at them in order to persuade them to a higher, better way. It's important to grasp the significance of the first several verses of the letter um, uh, for, that we know as 1 Corinthians. Paul opens by saying, Paul, called by the will of God. Called by the will of God. This is God's choice. This was not my choice. You remember Paul's, the story of Paul's conversion. Paul was was not looking for a new religion. He wasn't looking for some uh, enhancement to his faith. He was defending the old way of being. And Paul had no interest at all in being a convert to Christ. In fact, he was a persecutor of the church. But it was God's will that he be an apostle. It was God's will that he be... Uh, uh, brought out of one thing and made into another thing and to be a chief representative of that thing Paul was not after this but it was the will of God and so Paul opens up with this uh, somewhat subtle assertion of his apostolic authority and he says Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus to be a messenger to be a spokesman for to be an ambassador for Christ Jesus Jesus And our brother Sosthenes, Uh, he was the ruler of the synagogue, and so he uh, uh, brings his brother Sosthenes into this. And then he says, to the church. So it's important that we recognize that Paul is writing to the people that he calls the church. You are the church. So all of the other things that he is going to say throughout the letter sounds like he's talking to people who are not Christians. Right? If you're you're doing these things, you can't possibly be a Christian. That's not what Paul is saying. He is saying you are Christians. You are the church. You are the ones, just like I was called by the will of God to be an apostle, you are the church. You are the ecclesia. You are the called out ones. You are the ones that God has chosen out of the world. And you are sanctified. You are set apart. You are uh, pulled out in Christ Jesus. And you are called to be saints. I'm sure that most of you know this, but I like saying it, um, a, 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 a saint in the Bible. When you hear Paul talking about to the saints, he addresses many of his letters to the saints at this place and that. Uh, so he calls them saints. He is not saying that they all have halos, right? Or that they have done the uh, whatever it is you do to become uh, a, a saint in the, in the Roman church. He's not saying that. A saint is a person who has been set apart a person who now has sanctuary access, a person who has access to the Holy of Holies. And we have access to the Holy of Holies through Jesus Christ. And He is saying to them, that is who you are. You are the church. You are saints of God. Together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then he does this really interesting thing. So if we um, continue through the book of, of 1 Corinthians, we find all of the scoldings and all of the corrections that he's going to do. He opens up this letter by giving thanks. He says, This: I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech. And in all knowledge, right, all all power, so that you are not lacking in any gift. There's going to be this this controversy of gifts later, but he's going to say, you have all of the gifts. There is nothing lacking in you as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, uh, this is all important for us to look into to 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 to, uh, to explore but his thanksgiving prayer for the corinthians in it he introduces many of the themes that we find later addressed in the body of the letter many of the things that are kind of going that are going to come up and be points of contention or points of correction in this letter he's addressing in his in his prayer of thanksgiving he is giving thanks for the gift of christ uh, so that's not in question. He is uh, uh, giving thanks for the, uh, the en- their enrichment in Christ in all speech and knowledge. They don't lack any gift. Uh, there are eschatological implications here as they await for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they are called into fellowship. They are called to be one body. And the body life of, of the church at Corinth is a significant issue as we, as we see as we read on. Just a couple more notes, and then I'm going to wrap up a little bit early so I can cool down just for a few minutes. Um, uh, the unity and cohesion of the letter of 1 Corinthians is really quite stunning. As you read it, there some people have hypothesized that this is a collection of different writings from different sources, and they've kind of been cobbled together. Uh, you can... You can you can maybe see where people say that with some of his letters, but with the letter of 1 Corinthians, it's just almost impossible, with the possible exception of the first part of Romans, or Romans, 1 Corinthians 11, where this conversation of head covering, some have said that that's a, a later insert, but, uh, but you don't find that to be um, what's at play here in this letter. It's really stunning, the, uh, the unity and the cohesion of the letter. And then there's one last thing that I want for us to remember before we, before we um, close. Um, as rough as Paul is on the Corinthians, and sometimes he is just brutally, brutally frank with them. Uh, he, he's just very direct. Everything he says about them at the beginning of the letter, about them being saints, about them being Uh, uh, holy, about them being the church, the called out ones, about them having been given all the gifts. All of the things that he says about them at the beginning of the letter are true throughout the letter. So when he is doing some of his most direct, most uh, confrontational work, It's all in mind, he's keeping in mind that they are saints. That he's all of the things that he has said about them at the beginning. And he is grateful for them. He loves them. Like a father confronting children who need to be uh, corrected. That's the work that he's doing. And he's doing so because he loves them. And because he believes these things about them. Even though it may seem that Paul is on the edge of telling them that they're all doomed. He's calling them back. To their true conception, uh, to a true conception of who they really are in Christ, when He's confronting their behaviors, when He's confronting these sins that they're that they're they're committing uh, against God and against each other, He is He is calling He He's calling them back to be who they are in Christ. They are new creation. All right, well let's uh, let's punch out. Let me pray for us real quick. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have spoken to us clearly in Scripture, that You have, uh, through Your Apostle, uh, been very kind to us in confronting our sin and encouraging us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We pray that You would uh, press deeply within us the truths of the Gospel, that we would be transformed into the image of Your Son. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.